Father, we thank you for, for loving us. We thank you for grace. We thank you for countless second chances that, that you don't give up, up on us. Father, this is worthy of our worship, and there's our need for you is so great. Fathers, thank you for bringing us here. Uh, thank you for that you worked it out, that each one of us in this room are here right now. Father, I just ask that you would teach us through your word, teach us through the songs that we sing, teach us through your spirit. Just continue to shape us and mold us more and more into the image of Jesus. Father, we just worship and praise you um, because you are the only one worthy of that. All this is for you. All this is about you. Father, just continue to work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead and turn to Matthew 17. While you're turning there, brief 30-second seminary lesson here. So... There's often two types of sermons that are used. There's a wide number of sermon style, titles, and all this stuff, but the most common are topical sermons and the expository sermons. Topical sermons being about a certain topic. Love, joy, peace, patience, the list goes on and on, forgiveness, whatever it be. And kind of looks at the entire Bible and sees what is God teaching about love or joy. Am I echoing? Okay, I feel like it. Um, expository sermons are more, okay, we're, we're going through a specific passage of Scripture, and we're going to look at what truths are in that passage. And that's, all, that's mostly what we here at CRC have done. We've done some topical here and there. Um, but for the most part, we've walked straight through passages, straight through entire books of the Bible, um, looking at the truths that are in them. And what I want to do today is, is do kind of a mixture of both, which until this week I didn't know there's actually a name for that. Um, it's called Topical Textual Sermons, for whatever that means. But what I want to do is we're going to look at Matthew 17, 21, or 14 through 23. But what I want to really want to do is look at what genuine faith is, and how Jesus is teaching and leading his disciples to have that type of faith. So I'm going to go ahead and read Matthew 14, 21, or 14 through 21, and we'll start there. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you had faith like, the, like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. 
So basically, while Jesus is up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, we, we saw last week that he was up there displaying his glory. Moses and Elijah were there. Um, Jesus was teaching his disciples, specifically Peter, James, and John, more of who he was. But while this is going on, this man with his son, is, have, they've come to Jesus, or they've come to his disciples looking for Jesus, because Jesus would have been known as the guy that could, was doing all these healings. People were continuing to come to him because he was healing. And being unable to find Jesus, they would have gone to his disciples as kind of the second go-to. And thus far, his disciples have been unable to heal. So what I want to do this morning is a little bit different than most of the sermons that I've prepared, at least. Um, just like last week, this passage is in Matthew, it's in Mark, and it's in Luke. And each of them focus on different aspects or different parts of this miracle, this healing. Matthew, like, kind of like we said throughout the rest of the book, is Jesus teaching his disciples about what it looks like to truly trust in him. And he's, he's revealing more and more about who he is. Mark, the, the, this parallel account in Mark is double the length of this in Matthew. And he focuses a lot more on the interaction between the Father and of between the Father and Jesus, whereas Matthew is looking a lot at the disciples and Jesus and how that happens. So we're gonna. I really want to focus a lot on Matthew um, because it's gonna. We're gonna see that he's teaching a lot of the same things that we've been in going through all the way through Matthew. It's gonna also look a lot like more of a three-point sermon than I normally do um, to help those of you that are taking notes or especially those that are taking notes to try to lead a CG or um, whatever that be. So hopefully we can follow along. Um, but if you remember back to Matthew 5, um, this would have been probably March of last year when we, t when we started the Beatitudes, or Jesus' commonly known Sermon on the Mount. And I'm just going to go ahead and read the, the first couple of verses as Jesus began to, to teach from the mountain. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He doesn't end there. He, he, go, he goes on. But for the sake of time, we're going to kind of stop there. What we see is that Jesus continues to teach kind of opposite what the world would say. Because the, the mourn, those that mourn are not blessed. They're, they're, they're mourning. They're, they're, they're not blessed. Those that are meek, those that are poor in spirit, they, they, they seem more broken than they do blessed. But that's, what the, that's, in, that's in the eyes of the world. And we see that those that are changed by the gospel, those who Jesus encounters and that experience the gospel at the deepest level, are often those that are in the most dire circumstances. I'm going to say something very obvious, but I think it's something that's often missed. I'm just going to read this. You will never think that you need a savior until you realize just how badly you need saving. You will never think that you need a savior until you realize just how badly you need saving. Completely obvious, but usually missed. You see, true faith often comes from true need. That's point number one, by the way. True faith comes from true need. You see, this father had need. 
He had great need. He had nowhere else to go. It says he fell down before Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. Mark tells us that this boy had been dealing with this problem for a while now. We don't know how old the boy is exactly, but it says he's, he's dealt with this from, chi- from his childhood. But him and his father have come from just a place of being at an end of themselves. They have nowhere else to go. Do you ever want to read a good book? Um, Kyle Adelman wrote a book called The End of Me. I just finished it a couple weeks ago. Really good book, going through the Beatitudes, saying this is what it looks like to be at the end of yourself, and that's when you experience Jesus. That's when you experience grace. That's when you realize you need saving because you've come to an absolute end of yourself. You've got nowhere else to go. But we see that he didn't, this father realized his need for Jesus because he saw his great need. And I was thinking this morning um, of a movie. Last, last weekend on Friday night, Andy, Dale, Brenna, myself, Tucker, and the three boys that we had last weekend went and saw Doctor Strange. Strange movie. I had never seen it. It's titled well. Has anybody seen the movie? Okay. Enough at least. So, Doctor Strange, a very arrogant man. Have you seen it? Oh. Do you know the story? Do you know Doctor the story of Doctor Strange? Okay. Uh, I'm not worried. You're the king of spoilers, so it's okay. Um. So Doctor Strange, a very cocky, a very arrogant man, very confident in his brains, very confident in his role as a doctor, as a brain surgeon, I don't know what his actual title is, but he's in a car wreck, his hands are very badly injured. He no longer can do his profession, he can no longer do what he's good at. He can no longer do where his identity was. But they, they repair his hands, he goes to his surgery, all this, he has very limited use. He does everything that he thinks he can do. He goes to therapy. He has surgeries. He's trying to fix all these problems, but it doesn't solve his problems. He finally kind of follows leading to go to some, find some extra help somewhere over in Asia. I don't remember where it was. I pay a lot of attention, as you can tell. But he goes to this, to look for this help, and he wants finding out what it is. He's like, that's dumb, and he leaves. But then he realizes that that was the kind of last hope, he realizes how badly he needs that. And there's a scene where he's begging at the door, basically, to be let back in because he realizes that that's his last step, that, that he has nowhere else to go if he, he wants to be healed. And this, this guy who has had a lot of pride, being very arrogant, being very confident in his abilities, was begging at the door of someone who could heal him, of someone who he thought could heal him. And I think it wasn't until he realized his need, it wasn't until he realized that his own brains couldn't save his hands that were broken. He was never going to be able to do this. It wasn't until he realized that that you actually saw a little bit of humility, a little bit of brokenness. This father here realizes that he's not going to save his son. He can't do it. And he's going before Jesus. And Jesus' response, this is in Mark But we see what Jesus tells the man. He says, all things are possible for the one who believes. And listen to what the faith of the father says. This is in Mark. Because immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. 
Not only did the father believe that Jesus could save his son, but he said, even where I don't believe, even where I fall short, I know I don't quite get this yet, even in that, help my unbelief. I still don't get it. I think that even when we think we get it, even when we say, I believe, but even when I don't, I still need Jesus even then. Because that, that, that's it. Because that, that's why those that mourn are blessed. Because they get to experience in that moment the comfort that only God can give. Because they see their need. Why are those that are broken in spirit blessed? Because they realize that in their brokenness, Jesus is the only one that can truly fix, that can, that can truly save. So true faith comes from true need. It comes out of a desperate need when you've got nowhere else to go. But it's not just the faith. It's, it's where that faith is in, or what that faith is in, who that faith is in. Because I think it's safe to say we all, like we can have faith in anything. We can have faith in anything. We can have faith that our favorite sports team was not going to lose, and then they lose. We can have faith that a good family, family member or a friend is not going to let us down. But they're going to let us down. You had faith that the chair you sat in was going to hold you when you sat down, and you probably didn't even think about it. Daquan's on the wobbly stool back there. You might want to have a lot of faith in that thing. Um, but you see, like, we have faith in very foolish things. We have faith in our money. Whether it's two pennies or whether it's two million dollars, we have faith that two pennies is two pennies, and it's going to buy what we think it's going to buy, or two million, that it's going to be worth two million. And it doesn't matter the amount of faith, because we're going to see, I don't think Jesus is really talking about the amount as in where the focus is. Because he, he doesn't say that you guys have no faith. He says you have little faith. But then he says, look what little faith can do. And that it really doesn't have anything to do with us mustering up more faith. Back when we were in Matthew 15, we talked about that faith is a gift. We looked at Ephesians 2, and it says, For grace you have been saved through faith. This is the gift of God. The, the, the whole thing, the grace, the saving, the faith, all of that is a good gift given by a good father. But that it's not the amount of faith. It's not, well, to do this, for Jesus to heal him, you need, to, you need that level 10 faith, and you're only at level 5, so you've got to get from 5 to 10. That, that's not it. It's where is your faith focused? Because true faith is focused on Jesus, just like this father. That's point number two, by the way. True faith is focused on Jesus. Here in Matthew 17, the son, this father brings his son in great need and comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I need you to save my son. And his response, Jesus' response, or the Father's response to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. You see, he, he's got it. He's focused in the right area. He knows that he needs Jesus, and he even needs Jesus where he doesn't know it yet. 
Even when he doesn't believe, even his unbelief, he needs Jesus. But the disciples continually took their eyes off of Jesus. They didn't say they had no faith. He said they had little faith. You see, like Peter had faith, stepped out of the boat, was good to go until he took his eyes off Jesus. He said he, he saw the wind, and that's when he began to sink. When they're in front of 5,000 men, plus all the women, plus all the children, the disciples continually saw the immensity of the problem, the big problem, all the mouths to feed and how little food they had. They were so focused on that that they weren't focused on Jesus, who was there, through whom all things are created, who could provide. On the boat, in the middle of a storm, they were so focused on the storm and being afraid of death that they didn't look at Jesus who was in the boat with them, who controls the wind, who controls the waves. It was things like this, the reasons like this that Jesus often said, you of little faith. Two of those instances he specifically said, oh, you of little faith. He wasn't asking them to, to, to muster that up themselves, to, to just, you got to do this, you got to do this. He's saying, just look at me. I am what you need. It's not just the amount, it's where it's focused. And I often think this is exactly how we operate, like thinking that somehow we have to do more. I mean, that's kind of what the prosperity gospel teaches. Like, if you, if you had more faith, if you went from the five to the ten on that faith scale, that you would be more wealthy. You'd be, you'd be healthy because obviously that's what God desires. That's a complete lie. Uh, that's not in scripture. Any verse that seems to point to that is not in context of the entire Bible. Because we see, we see that Paul, who kind of displays his faith throughout the entire New Testament, we see that he was given this thorn in his flesh that was often seen as a disease or an impairment of some sort. He was sick. Jesus would have been seen as poor in the eyes of the world because it said he had nowhere to lay his head. So I, I don't think we'd say that, well, Jesus just didn't have faith, so he didn't have money. He wasn't wealthy. Because Matthew 5, it doesn't say, blessed are the rich, the wealthy, those who have it all put together. It says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Because our mustering up of this giant faith doesn't fix any of that. Sickness, pain, death, whatever you want to put in there, is, is, is because we live in a sinful, broken world. Our faith doesn't cure that. Big faith doesn't keep you from dying. You're going to die. Sorry if that's hard to hear. Big faith doesn't keep you from being sick. Big faith doesn't keep you from financial difficulty. That's not it at all. I mentioned Paul in this thorn. Listen to Paul. Paul was continually beaten, was continually thrown in jail. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by a snake. All these things. And even in all those, it says he was given a thorn in his flesh to keep him from boasting. And it says he begged God to take the 
that from him. Take it away. I, to, please take that away. And God, listen to, this, listen to the response of Jesus here. This is in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says, but my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Then listen to Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, Paul learned that it wasn't his circumstances that were going to define his faith. That his weaknesses actually showed the glory of God. That it showed the power of God because even then, he trusted in Christ. Like, if we believe that God is sovereign, if we believe that, meaning that, that he's in control, that he's not surprised, that he's not surprised over the death, over sickness, over whatever it be, if we believe that, and that he orchestrated that, then that is where our faith is going to be because he's in control. And we realize that something, someone, that Jesus is infinitely greater than us, infinitely greater than our situation, whatever that be, that will change our attitude. It will change our response. It will change our posture. Because we live in this society that says that you can do it. To have faith in yourself, because it's all about self. It's what self can do. I did a Google search of self words. I just jotted down a couple. There's probably like 500 on this list. Self-motivation, self-esteem, self-image, self-passion, self-help, self-respect. Just do a Google search sometime of self-words. It's astounding how many things it's like, because you can do it. Build yourself up. If you're down, if you're discouraged, just believe in yourself. You can do it. You can fix it. You just got to be, you got to encourage yourself. You can do it. Listen to some of these quotes. I didn't put who they're by. I don't think that's important. This is not what I'm condoning. But I'm saying, like, this is the attitude of many, many people. Low self-confidence isn't a life sentence. Self-confidence can be learned, practiced, and mastered just like any other skill. Once you master it, everything in your life will change for the better. Trust yourself. Create the kind of self that you will be happy to live with all your life. Make the most of yourself by fanning the tiny inner sparks of possibility into flames of achievement. You can have anything if you want, anything you want if you're willing to give up the belief that you can't have it. If you're presenting yourself with confidence, you can pull off pretty much anything. As I was reading these, I was just overwhelmed by this sense of sadness at people that are living with that hope, living with faith that that is going to do it. Scroll through Facebook sometime. Scroll through Facebook. See the amount of people that post that if you do this, if I can just muster up more strength, then I'm going to be in a better place. Maybe I just need new Facebook friends. I don't know. But this is rubbish. This is something that their hope is not, their faith is not in something that can provide. Jesus' response to the disciples, to their misguided faith, 
He said, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Because whatever it was, their faith wasn't solely in the fact that he was going to save. In this situation, this boy. Jesus in John 15, 5. A very well-known verse, but a very, very, very important verse. 4 and 5. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. This is Jesus speaking. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. His disciples would continue to need this encouragement. They would continue to need told that they can't do it. It's not in their power. Jesus, as he would build his church, it wasn't in the disciples' power, it was Jesus. Mark 9.29, which is the final verse of the account in Mark. The disciples come to him and say, why can't we do this? Matthew doesn't record this, but Mark does. Jesus says, this kind, speaking of the demon, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You would think that the disciples would have, got, have gotten this by now, but they hadn't. This is something that Jesus would continue to remind his disciples. He would take them up on the mountain to pray. He would teach them how to pray. He said, pray like this. Because they were dependent on him. They were dependent on God to move. And I think that true faith leads to prayer. That's point number three. True faith leads to prayer. Because that's what prayer is. Prayer is saying, I'm dependent. If you're not dependent, you don't need to pray. In anything and everything, we are 100% dependent. This father was utterly dependent on Jesus to save his son. The disciples would be... uh, utterly dependent on Jesus to empower them through Acts that we're reading on Sunday nights. It's very clear reading through Acts that it's not the disciples, it's not Stephen, it's not Paul, it's, it's God working, calling people to himself, building his church. And we right now are no different. Our dependence is no different. But do we believe that? Do we believe how dependent we are? This is a quote by John Piper uh, talking about prayer. He says, Prayer is the open admission that without Christ we can do nothing. And prayer is the turning away from ourselves to God in confidence that he will provide the help we need. Prayer humbles us as needy and exalts God, exalts God as wealthy. See, prayer is showing that we are dependent. That nothing that we can do, we don't have that within us. We don't have the power to build a church. We don't have the power to save people. We don't have the power to do whatever. 
The Father here gets that, and Jesus is teaching his disciples that they completely are dependent on him. They are completely dependent on him who has the power. Verse 17 shows that Jesus, it kind of shows his frustration uh, or his sadness, his disappointment. He says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. You see, Jesus has already told them that he's going to suffer and he's going to die, that he's going to be leaving. And you see their response to that the first time. And now Jesus is going to tell them a second time. I'm just going to read Matthew 17, 22 and 23. So right, right after this, says this has happened. It says, as they were gathered in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of a man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And it says that they were greatly distressed. You see, like, he's getting ready to leave. He's getting ready to return to heaven. And he's teaching his disciples, you've got to rely on me. Anything that goes on from here on out that has gone on is through me. I hold the power. Rely on me. You're dependent on me. Because these disciples would go on, like we kind of said last week, that they would go on to be huge instruments used in building the church. And for this to happen, they had to be completely, 100%, totally, absolutely, add a couple more synonyms in there, but they were dependent on him. And Jesus would continue to use things to grow their faith. All through Acts, you see persecution, you see difficulty, you see beatings, you see all sorts of things that he would continue to use to grow their faith. He would send the Holy Spirit to continue to change their hearts and give them more faith. Because Jesus is still building his church. And we are still utterly dependent on him to do so. Like, do we really believe that we are dependent on him? Like, do our actions, do our words, do what, does what we do show that we are dependent on him? Because we're completely at the mercy of God, just like this father came and said, Had mercy on, have mercy on me. Have mercy on my son. He was completely at the mercy of God. Because our, our true need, our true weakness, this is what should leave us to, lead us to have faith. But being aware of that, being aware of our need, but our need for salvation, our need for the power, our need for Jesus, our faith has to be focused on Jesus. Matthew 17 shows a father in great need. And then Mark, in Mark, we see Jesus saying, this kind of demon can only be cast out through prayer. I'm not going to get into the reality of demon possession and, and all of that, but I do think that we gloss over that way too easily because of our sophisticated scientific minds. That could be a good CG discussion. I'm not going to get into it a whole lot here. But I think we look past that way too quickly. 
but do we realize how dependent we are? And our dependency should, real, should push us, should lead us to nothing but prayer. Because do we realize who we pray to? The same God that created the world, who holds the world in his hands, who created us, who loves us, sent Jesus to die for us. Like, this is who we're praying to. Like, we're not praying to a statue on a desk. We're not praying to an idol made with hands. But we're, we're praying to the God that created all of this and who is upholding all of this. Like, I think this is true faith. Faith that comes from our great need is focused on Jesus and goes to him in prayer showing how dependent we are. Like, I, I really just want to urge you, urge myself, urge us as this church to pray. Out of our dependence on him to pray. This is the application point. Pray. We're having a prayer night tonight at 5.30. I cannot urge you enough to come to prayer night. Such an amazing thing, something that I think we are extremely blessed to be able to do as a church family. That we get to come praising God. We get to come showing that how much we need him. We get to take our needs. We get to do all these things before the God that holds the power, the God that loves us, and the God that we're so, so dependent on. Because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice, listen to what Hebrews 4.16 says. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Because of Jesus, we can be confident. We can go before God and pray. We can go before God in our dependence and show how needy we are. We can be confident that he hears us. This is mind-blowing. This is hard to understand that a God that is that big would hear our prayers. And that's what our faith has to look like. Dependent on Jesus who holds the power. In spite of our sin, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our current life situation, we can go before God in prayer. One of the most powerful pictures that I've ever seen, let alone taken, is hopefully going to be up on these screens. Here's a 10-year-old boy, full of hurt, full of pain, in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances that many of us were aware of. And here he is on his knees, praying for his friends, praying for his friends in their difficult circumstances, praying to a heavenly father that loves him. And I don't know if he knows this, but how dependent he is on this heavenly father. 
I want this to be our posture. If we are utterly dependent, this is going to be our posture, whether it be literally, whether it be figuratively. It says that the Father came and knelt down before Jesus in his need. We are so in need. We are so in need. I just challenge you to pray. In our dependence on him, we pray. Let's pray.